welcome y'all folks to another episode of Jurassic Fans Arena Nerd Podcast. Welcome to this special episode. So I'm Daniel, your host, and this is the man who survived the Jurassic Park just to fall to dysentery, Matthew Millen. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. Daniel, good sir. How are you today in this quite chilly afternoon? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you came back just to suffer again. Yes. And you, Polly Boy, how's it going? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging there. Uh, liking this, this good weather today. So it's a perfect weather, you know. I'm, it is. I'm I mean, <laughs> you know, if Jurassic World's a menu, it, it gets so much from chilly scenes. It will be all quite fine for the, two, the three of us. We simply love the freezing temperatures, right? So, yeah. Jurassic fans, we have such a special episode for all of you today, because we're recording... Ooh. Yeah, this episode is all about celebrating Jurassic June. That's why we gathered once again, the three of us, because we're doing a special reading of a lost script. Not really lost, I mean, you can find it on the internet, but one that was not used. A script of uh, The Lost World Jurassic Park by David Cope, which is much similar to the novel than the one we have on screen, all right? So... Let's hit the PDF, boys. Y'all ready? Oh, yeah. So, starting now. <clears throat> uh, external Tropical Lagoon, day. A 135-foot luxury yacht is anchored just offshore in a tropical lagoon. The beach is a stunning, is a stunning crescent of white the jungle fringe, utterly deserted. Isla Sorna, 87 miles southeast of Nublar. Two, sh two ship hands dressed in white uniforms have set up a picnic table with three chairs on the sand and are carefully laying out lunch and service. Fine china, silver, crystal decanters with red and white wine. Paul Bowman, 40-ish, sits in a chair off to the side reading. Mrs. Bowman, no, Miss Bowman, painfully thin, <laughs> with the perpetually surprised look of a woman who's had her eyes done more than once, supervises the settings of the table. She looks up and sees a little girl, Katie, seven or eight years old, wandering off down the beach. Katie, don't wander off! Katie keeps wondering. Katie, come back. You can look for shells right here. Katie gestures, pretending she can hear. Oh, I'm still hearing reading my book. Leave her alone. Mr. Bowman, of course. What about snakes? There is no snakes on the beach, woman. Let her have fun for once. Further down the beach, Katie keeps wandering away, muttering to herself as her parents' quarreling voices fade in the distance. Please be quiet, please be quiet, please be quiet. Rounding a curve in the beach, her parents disappear from view behind her. A rustling sound draws her attention, and she turns toward where the thick jungle foliage gives way to the sand. A large bush, maybe 12 feet tall, is moving its branches, swaying and shaking. Curious Katie walks up to the bush, which abruptly stops moving. 
A small lizard-like animal, dark green, with brown stripes along its back, steps out from the bush. Only about a foot tall, it stands on its hind legs, balancing on its thick tail. It walks upright, bobbing its head like a chicken. Oh, hello there. The animal, Acomsognathus, just stares at her. Katie squats, squats down on her haunches. What are you, a little bird or something? She opens her hand. She's got a handful of goldfish crackers. Are you hungry? You want a goldfish? The compi bobs forward a few steps, cautiously. Come on, I won't hurt you. The compi draws closer. Kathy holds the cracker in the palm of her hand. The compi gets closer still. And hops numbly up onto Kathy's palm. Her arm dips a bit under the weight, but it's not that heavy. And she holds it up easily. It, it bobs its head again, scarfs the goldfish, and eats it. Enchanted, Kathy breaks into an enormous grin and returns her hand, calling back over her shoulder. Mom, Dad, you gotta come see this. I found something. She turns back. Thirty more compies have come out onto the sand. They're standing there bobbing anxiously, staring at her from a few feet away. Kathy's smile fades. She turns her head slowly to the right. Twenty more compies have come in front of that side, forming a semicircle, bobbing and chipping as they surround her. What do you guys want? Back on the beach, the table is set. Mrs. Bowman calls out, Kathy, sweetheart, lunch is ready. From around the curve of the beach, a flock of birds bolts from the jungle trees as Kathy's shrill screams suddenly pierce the air. Paul! She takes off, running down the beach. Mr. Bowman leaps out of his chair and falls, and all available deck hands race off to help, kicking up geysers and sand behind them. Down the beach, Mrs. Miss Bowman stops dead in, the, in her tracks when she rounds the bend in the beach. We don't see what she sees, but we hear the frenzied squeaking of the strange compies. Mr. Bowman and the hands race past her to help Kathy, as Mrs. Bowman lets loose a horrified, slack-jawed scream. The dove to internal boardroom, died. Mrs. Bowman's creamy face dissolves slowly over the only face of a bold corporate executive. Twenty other executives sit around a conference table in the boardroom of a moneyed corporation. All are in expensive suits, most are over 60. There are rows of backbenchers too, whispering their lawyers who sit behind their clients, whispering their ears. Empty coffee cups and fast food containers on the table hint that everyone's been here a long time. A familiar voice resounds through the boardroom as we move down the long table, part of the green faces of the board members. The hurricane seemed like a disaster at the time, but now I think it was a blessing. Nature's way of freeing those animals from their human compliance. I was giving them another chance to survive, but this time, as they were meant to, without man's interference. The source of the voice is John Hammond the founder of Finton and creator of Jurassic Park. But he's not in the room. His image is on the closed circuit TV screen, which has been wheeled up to the end of the table. And he doesn't look good. He's terribly infirmed, propped up in bed, his face pale and drawn, medical equipment beeping around him. 
there are some corporate issues that are not about the bottom line. We have so much still to learn about those creatures. A whole world of intricate interlocking behaviors vanished everywhere, except for Site B, please. Let's not do what is good for men at the expense of what is best for all mankind. The chairman, Savantish, nods awkwardly to the television. Thank you, John. Mr. Ludlow? He turns to Peter Ludlow, late thirties, a man with the anxious look of someone who insists the book stop on his desk. Ludlow flips open a file, pulls out a, stab, a stack of black and white eight by tens, and tosses them on the table. The pictures were taken in a hospital in Costa Rica 48 hours ago. After an American family on a yacht cruised strumbled onto site B, the little girl will be fine, but her parents are wealthy, hungry, and very fond of lawsuits. But that is hardly new to us, it is. Is it? Wrongful death, settlements, partial lists, family of Donald Gennaro, the receipt of $5 million dollars Family of Robert Mulden, 12.6 million. Damage or destroy the equipment, 17.3 million. Demolition, deconstruction, and disposal of isotonobular facilities, organic and inorganic, $126 million. The list goes on, gentlemen. Research funding, media payoffs, silence is expensive. He's warming up. Not a bad performer. This corporation has been bleeding from the throat for your ears. Your, you, our board of directors, have sat personally and listened to ecology lecturers while Master Hyman signed your checks and spent your money. You have watched your stock drop from 78 and a quarter to 19 flat with no good and insight. In all along, we have held a significant product set that we could have safely harvested and display for profit, enormous profit. It reaches out from all on the table and gives it a shave, selling sliding down the length of the table in front of them. It's a, mini, a minimal version of a zoo, cages hold tiny replicas of various kinds of dinosaurs, while boys scale troops and tourists look on in wonder. Enough money to wipe off favorite years of lawsuits and damage control and unpleasant inflating. Enough to not only send your stock back to where it was but to double it. And the one thing, the only thing that's standing between us and this asset is a born again naturalist who happens to be our own CEO. Well, I don't work for Mother Nature. I work for you. Two of his backbenchers distribute documents from a stack. Little old checks one and reads it from it. Whereas the chief executive officer has engaged in most for and negligent business practice, says to filter his own personal environmental beliefs, whereas those practices have affected the financial performance of company by incurring significant losses, whereas the shareholders have been materially harmed by these losses, thereby be resolved that John Parker Hammond 
should be resolved from the office of chief executive officer effective immediately. Mr. Chairman, I move the resolution be put to an immediate vote. Do I have a second? I second the motion, Mr. Chairman. Uh, please poll the members by a show of hands. The chairman signed heavily, feeling like a traitor. He can't bear to look at Hammond on the TV monitor. All those in favor of Angel Copyright Resolution 213C, please signify your approval by raising your right hand. It starts slowly, guiltily, but every hand in the room goes up. Lulu sits back victorious. Hammond furious raises his right hand, which holds the remote control, and points it at the TV screen. It goes black. To exterior Wilder's yard, night. Sparks fly out the windows and doors of a shed in the middle of a Wilder's yard. Scrap iron and steel lies everywhere. Somewhere inside the shed, a phone rings. The whoosh of the arc Wilder shuts off. Theater Stark, a big barrel chested man of 40 or so, his face streaked with soot and grime, steps outside with a cordless phone, a cigarette dangling from his lips. Yeah. He takes a deep, a deep drag while someone talks on the other hand. He smiles and blows out a cloud of smoke. Cut to internal New York subway night. Smoke turns into steam as a subway thunder into a station underneath Manhattan. The door washes open, spit out some computers and suck up a few more. A tall man hurries down the platform, limping heavily, moving as fast as he can. The subway doors begin to close, but just before they meet, the man jams a cane in between, stopping them. The man is Ian Malcolm, 40-ish, dressed, <clears throat> dressed in black from head to toe. There's a hard wisdom in Malcolm's eyes that may not have been there a few years ago. He knows what you think, and he doesn't care. Internal subway car, night. Malcolm finds a seat on the crowded subway car and sits down. He looks awful, tired, weathered. He notices a curious man across from his, across from him is staring at his. Malcolm looks away. The curious man still stares. Nervy, the curious man gets up and approaches. Dang it. The curious man sits down next to Malcolm, grinning. You are him, aren't you? Excuse me? The guy! The scientist! I saw you on TV! Conspiratorly? I believe you! No response from Malcolm. The guy leans in, leans in even closer. Roar. Malcolm, in a withering look. I was um, um, misquoted. I was um, merely speculating on the evolutionary scenario of a lost world. I, um, I never said I was in, in any such place. He gets up and moves to another seat on the car, away from the curious man. As he sits down, he notices two other co commuters across from him are staring at him. He looks at them. They look away. He pulls the collar off of his coat up tight around him, nowhere to hide. Internal John Hammond's apartment, night. A uniformed butler has a question. Whom shall I tell Mr. Hammond is calling? 
Malcolm stands in the foyer of an expensive decorated park, Portman Avenue. Ian Malcolm. A door opens and a little dog comes yapping out of the back. It bounds straight at Malcolm, growling, jaws snapping. It lunges and Malcolm bats it away with one swift swing of his cane. The dog rolls across the floor and slinks away, whining. The blutter looks at Malcolm disapprovingly. Not an animal lover. Not really. Indeed. Internal Hammond's bedroom night. Malcolm enters a darkened bedroom. John Hammond lies in the bed we saw earlier, on the other side of the room. Medical equipment has been disguised as well as possible among the furniture and flowers, but the sheer abundance of it tells us that whatever has stricken him is going to win this battle. Ian, don't linger in the doorway like a ninja you. Come in, come in. Malcolm steps <clears throat> further in the room. It's good to see you. Is it really how's it? It is really. How's the leg? Resentful. When you have a lot of time to think, it's funny who you remember. It's the people who challenged you. It's the quality of your opponents that give your accomplishments meaning. I never told you how sorry I was about what happened after we returned. Noticing Hammond's deteriorated condition, Malcolm finds it hard to sustain anger. I didn't know you wanted to well. It's the lawyers. The lawyers are finally killing me. They do have motives. Why did you want to see me? Your mother said it was urgent. You're right. And I was wrong. There. Did you see over there? You'd hear me say that? Spectacularly wrong. Instead of observing those animals, I tried to control them. <laughs> I squandered an opportunity, and we still now know next to nothing about their lives. Not their lives as men would have them behind electric fences, but in the wild, behavior in their natural habitat, the possible dream of any paleontologist. It could have, I could have had it, but I let it slip away. Thank God for sight B. Malcolm just looks at him for a long moment. What? Hammond, I spark in his eye. Well, didn't it all seem a trifle compact to you? What are you talking about? The hatchery, in particular? You know my initial yields had to be low, far less than 1%. That's a thousand embryos for every single live birth. Genetic engineering on that scale implies a giant operation, not the spotless little laboratory I showed you. I don't believe you. Isla Nubar was just a showroom, Ian. Something for the tourists. Site B was the factory floor. We built it first on Isla Sorna, eight some miles from Nublar. No, 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 no. After the accident at the park, a hurricane wiped out our facility on Site B. We had to evacuate and leave the animals to fend for themselves, and they did. For four years, I fought to keep them safe from human meddling. Now I want you to go there and document them. Uh, are, are you out of your mind? I still have nightmares. My reputation is a joke. My leg is shot. Do you think I need more of that? It would be the most extraordinary living fossil record the world has ever seen. So what? 
Hammond picks up a thick file folder from the night table near to him and opens it on his lap. Inside, there are memos, charts, maps, and photographs. I've been putting this together for over a year. I have personal suggestions for your entire team, phones, num phone numbers, contact people. They won't believe you about what they're going to see, so don't bother trying to convince them. Just use my checkbook to get them there. I'll fund your expedition through my personal accounts, as such money and equipment as you need. But only if you leave immediately. If we hesitate, all will be lost. God. You'll need an animal behaviorist, someone with an impeccable credentials. I believe you already know Sarah Harding. She's got theories about parenting and nurturing among hunter scavengers. I bet she's dying to prove on a scale like this. If you convince her to go, it'll be a major coup. When she publishes, the scientific community must take it seriously. Malcolm just shakes his head, flipping through the file sadly. Your documentation, you should use forensic photographic methods. Hasselblad, still cameras, high definition video. When the trick photography analysts take your evidence apart, make it impossible for them to say there was enhancement or computer graphic imaging. Oh, this is very important. Avoid the island interior at all costs. Stick to the outer rim. Everything you need to know can be found there. Vindication lies on the outer rim. Malcolm gently closes the file and pushes it back to Hammond. I'm not going, John. Hammond fatigue returning. I am... You are my last chance to give something of real value to the world. I can't walk so far and leave no footprints. Die and leave nothing with my name on it. I will not be known only for my failures. And you will not allow yourself to go down in history as a lunatic. You're too smart. You're too proud. Dr. Malcolm, please. This is a chance at redemption for both of us. There's no time for it, Kivokit. We must seize it now, before he stops, staring over Malcolm's shoulder. Malcolm turns. Peter Ludlow, still in his overcoat, is standing in the doorway up to the bedroom. He looks back and forth from Hammond to Malcolm, suspiciously. Hello, Uncle John, Dr. Malcolm. Malcolm doesn't answer. He seems to know Ludlow and dislikes him. Oh, did I interrupt something? Malcolm turns back to Hammond. Find someone else. 